following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Yeah, I was in the book of Luke, actually, when, Ru- when Reuben asked me to speak on one of the miracles of Jesus. And I had no idea which one to pick until I came across the widow of Nain and her son in chapter 7, which caught my attention on a number of levels. And it's incredible, actually, how many times you read your Bible, and you just seem to drift through some of these stories. Um, And I was just surprised that this one hasn't caught my attention before. But anyway, I'm sure many of you probably struggled to recall some of these stories, and I won't have a straw poll about that in any event. Um, I mean, as Reuben said last week, uh, the miracles of Jesus have a number of purposes in the Bible. They reinforce the divinity of Jesus. They reinforce that he is the one promised by God. They reinforce that he is the one who would be a blessing to all nations. They're also there to glorify God. Jesus on many of occasions says, I do these things to bring glory to God. They're also there to show the character of Jesus and therefore of God. Jesus says, those who have seen me have seen the one who have sent me and I can do nothing that is not of the Father. Notably, his love and compassion. And it also supports the statement that John and Jesus made that the kingdom of God is near. Not only in the sense of Jesus being near, but in the sense of the kingdom that's to come being near and the taste of that kingdom that's to come in the actions of Jesus. And it is finally to signpost us to the new generation, to the kingdom that is to come when all will be restored and all will be made new and there'll be no more sickness and no more suffering and no more death. And this miracle addresses a number of those points. So let me read it for you. It's um, be on the screen if you've got your Bibles. Please follow through. It's Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, this is one of three recorded miracles in the Bible where Jesus raises someone from the dead. There's the one that we all know, which is Lazarus, which is actually not in the book of Luke. And then when he raises and heals Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. So let me pray before we start and give some context and some reason as to why I've picked this one this morning and what it teaches us today. So let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your presence with us. We welcome your spirit among and within us. We give thanks for your love, grace, truth, and mercy in the person of Jesus, your son, who walked among us that we may know and that in believing we may live in this joy of knowing. As we enter into your word today, I pray, Lord, that we hear the words, your truth spoken today, 
with the power and strength that can only come from your spirit. Those on the side of truth hear your voice today. Jesus, we hear again your words from Luke to your apostles, saying, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Father, we claim that power today. May all the words that are spoken be of your spirit. May we hear them with a unity of heart that is one with your heart. And may we not walk from this place today without your words giving passion and meaning to all that we do, that you may be worshipped and glorified in every place that we are. As always, we ask this in the presence of and name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, to give some context before we get into the miracle itself, um, the Scripture says that his disciples and the large crowd were with him. So he already had this following. Jesus had already been around for some time, and his ministry was evident. So this miracle was not necessarily about demonstrating the divinity of Jesus or his healing capabilities. There was something different about this miracle. Nyan is just a small little Galilean town, about 12 kilometers southeast of Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. It's an insignificant dot on the map of Israel. It has no significance in the history of Israel and no great reason for being. So no great clue there. We start to get a sense of this when we get on to the next point, which is the dead man was identified as the only son of his mother. Now, it is not normal in Jewish culture, which is a highly patriarchal culture, to reference men to women. It is always the other way around. It is always woman in reference to men. Times have somewhat changed. Um, I know I'm referred to on many occasions as being the husband of Jennifer, which honestly I don't have a particular problem with except when the words just the are inserted before the husband of Jennifer. But anyway, the main issue here is that um, the reference to him in relation to his mother Um, gives us a sense of where this is going and who's the important part of this miracle. The reference to the son as being the body of a widow's only son indicates a greater tragedy, something that we probably wouldn't be aware of today. But in a Jewish culture then, the loss of an only son, and particularly for a widow, was a calamitous event. Some Christian writers call it a catastrophic state. And the scripture reinforces this by saying there was a large crowd from the town was with her. They understood what this meant for her in the loss of an only son. They understood her tragedy and loss. Further scripture references such loss in the following words, and these will be on the screen. In Amos 8.10, I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son at the end of a bitter day. Now, this was God's reference to the sinful nature and disobedience of Israel. And the preceding reference to the scripture is he says, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. So we understand from this statement where God's heart is, who he sees as vulnerable and where his love and compassion lies. Also in Jeremiah 6 verses 26, put on sackcloth, my people, and roll in ashes. Mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. So the loss of a son was a tragic event, particularly for a widow. Now to be a widow in Jewish culture meant to be extremely vulnerable. 
You were basically at the mercy of the people around you. You didn't connect with the social network around you and you were outside. You were marginalized and you were on the edge. And there are many, many references in the scriptures about the plight of widows. Scriptures such as do not take advantage of a widow. Defend the cause of the widow. Many references to farming practice where they say leave some olives on the trees or leave some sheaves of corn in the fields for widows. And many teachings of the apostles when they talk about the plight of widows particularly and that they be highlighted and singled out for special help and care. So there was a little sense here of what was really going on here with this widow. Now Jesus touching this bier or the stretcher that they carried the bodies on normally when they buried them outside the city was an absolute no-no in Jewish culture. It resulted in ritual impurity that required a cleansing. And depending on how close you got to the body and whether you touched the body itself, this cleansing got more and more strict. So you note in Scripture that Jesus didn't need to hold this stretcher. He, just simply touching it was enough to stop the procession. And as we see in a number of cases in Scripture, Jesus had little regard for religious laws imposed by man for the obedience of many and the benefit of some in the religious hierarchy. And this fact is reinforced in reference in the scripture to the Pharisees' accusations of Jesus' own disciples breaking religious traditions. In response, Jesus quotes Isaiah, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship their teachings. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So this miracle is giving us a greater understanding about the heart of Jesus and what he sees as honoring of him and therefore of God. And in the final verses, it talks about the people being filled with awe and praising God and statements that God has come to help his people. Now at this time, Israel had been waiting hundreds of years for the one who would come, the one that was promised, the one that would redeem Israel, the one that would bring them back to where they were before but they still miss the identity of Jesus, the true identity. They identify him as a prophet, not of the Son of God. They did not yet see Jesus as the culmination of the great promise by God to bless all, his great rescue story for the world and the person of Jesus Christ. So that is some context to this miracle. Let's get into the miracle itself and see why this particular one um, was the one that caught my attention. Firstly, it's the woman, the widow, that is the real center of this account and focus of Jesus, not the son, although he does benefit somewhat in some small way. Um, as briefly stated in the Jewish social context, women were normally identified in relation to males, but this scripture talks about the only son of his mother, referencing him to her. She is at the center of this story. And following that focus of attention, the scripture is rich with she was the widow. The crowd was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. He spoke to her. He gave his son back to her. She is the center of this event. She's without a son and she is a widow. She is the poor in spirit that we hear about in the Beatitudes to whom Jesus has come to bring the good news. And we'll go into this a little bit later. In the healing of the son, Jesus had not only brought him back to life, he had indeed restored the woman to her community, particularly a first century Jewish community. Not only was she the focus, but she also triggered in Jesus an immediate response. Don't cry, 
was the first thing he said to her. This was where his heart was centered. This is what affected him most deeply. He also spoke with divine authority. In a number of Jewish, uh, Jesus' miracles, he talks about your faith has made you whole. In this case, he speaks directly to the corpse, which you would appreciate as an obvious lack of faith because the fact is he's dead at that time. Um, so he's speaking with direct divine authority. And it's interesting that this miracle follows an earlier miracle in Luke 7, when Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And as you may recall, the centurion says to Jesus, I'm not worthy that you would come to my home. So he merely says to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I himself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does that. And in response to this, Jesus immediately heals his servant, sight unseen. And he says to him, this Gentile Roman soldier, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. And it's useful to reference this authority to the Grand Commission for all of us in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. So we note that while the crowd calls Jesus a prophet, he is clearly more than that. He is the one with direct divine authority, the one through which all things were made and the one through which all things will be renewed and restored. And this is reinforced in Luke when he calls Jesus Lord in verse 13. Thirdly, the act of Jesus giving back the son to the mother, who is the focus of this miracle, is a true act of compassion. It's a gift of grace, a free gift, no strings attached. It did not require faith on the one who has been healed, and it did not require request by the person affected by this tragic affair. Many miracles flow from those quests and questions. And as one writer puts it in the words on the screen, Good blessings may come to us when reason speaks and God's wise judgment answers, but we get our best blessings when our afflictions cry unto him and his compassion replies. I'll repeat that. Good blessings may come to us when reason speaks and God's wise judgment answers, but we get our best blessings when our afflictions cry unto him and his compassion replies. This is the heart of God. That is the heart of his Son. An overflowing heart of compassion a gift of grace, an answer without call, without asking. When similar hearts as those are displayed by us, we call that our true humanity. And as many of you will know, no message from Ellen McGregor is not complete without a quote from Bono of U2. And when he spoke in 2007 to the NAACP when he won an award for the one campaign to eradicate world poverty, he was speaking in response to some churches who some would call modern-day Pharisees who were hugely judgmental at that stage. And he said, this is true freedom, sorry, true religion. True religion will not let us fall asleep in the comfort of our freedom. Love thy neighbor is not a piece of advice, it's a command. And that means in the global village we have to start loving a lot more people. Because where you live should not decide whether you live or die. It's actually a quote from one of the U2 songs, actually. Because whatever thoughts we may have about God, who he is, or even if God exists, most will agree that God has a special place 
for the poor. The poor are where God lives. God is in the slums, in the cardboard boxes where the poor playhouse. God is where opportunity is lost and lives are shattered. God is with the mother who has infected her child with a virus that will take both their lives. God is under the rubble and cries we hear during wartime. God, my friends, is with the poor. And God is with us if we are with them. That is our true humanity. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. That's what it means to be truly human. So we return to the giving back. In giving back the son to the widow, Jesus had given her her life back. He had restored her standing in the community. Her humanity had been given back. She now had one who could support her. That which she had lost had been returned and restored. And the miracle demonstrates the power and authority of Jesus over death. In the now living son giving, being given back, it foreshadows the time of the new creation when we will be given back to God, restored, renewed and restored, saved by divine authority, bought with the blood of Jesus, death overcome, that which was lost and broken, returned to our maker in perfection. So this little miracle witnessed by many in a town in Israel of no significance at the funeral of a son for someone without social status, the one for whom Jesus had compassion, in some way also foreshadows his own death. Because Jesus, the only son taken from his father by death, the father who at the cross becomes the widower, the father who has experienced and knows our pain. Then in the miracle of resurrection, Healing is brought about which ultimately results in Jesus being given back to his heavenly father to sit at his right hand. So we've seen Jesus do three things here. We've seen him tell the mother not to weep. And for the readers of Luke at that time, they would, be, they would remind them about the good news of salvation when there will be no more weeping and all mourning will turn to dancing and there will be laughter. When Jesus touches this bio or stretcher, an act not accepted in religious terms. It tells us of a new order of things, not of rules, but of compassion and different, of a divine love and a God of justice and mercy. And finally, Jesus speaks not in prayer to God, but in divine authority, authority that has a heart of compassion, authority that knows, has experienced and feels our pain, an authority that heals, restores and renews. So what does this all teach us today, 2013 now? Well, this whole scripture turns on the verse, his heart went out to her. Some versions say it has, he has compassion on her. And what does it mean to have compassion? Compassion means to suffer with. It is never just words, never just kind words, always involvement, always action. We are reminded that the great acts of redemption in the Bible and the miracles of Jesus and the greatest act of redemption ever made, which was the gift and sacrifice of his son, all have their foundation in compassion, all have their foundation in a love and a concern for others. To paraphrase Ravi Zacharias, there is only one place where the aggregate of human suffering can be held, and that is in the place and heart of God. However, God places in the heart of each one of us a heart for one element of suffering of our fellow humans. And he goes on to say that the cry of our heart becomes one with the heart of God in true worship when we willingly, compassionately, and without com condition serve this need in our heart. Let me repeat that last bit. 
the cry of our heart becomes one with the heart of God in true worship when we willingly, compassionately, and without conditions serve this need within our heart. So our compassion antenna should be tuned by the Spirit and the heart of Jesus. We need to be alert to those who are in need. We need to be aware what is in our heart and where our passions lie about those that are in need. And we need to offer an immediate and compassionate and loving response. And what does this look like? We're not here to try and solve people's problems. We're simply needing to be present with them, being alongside, praying together, sharing their pain. Hopefully we can offer some practical assistance. Meals made, lifts given, whatever that may be. But we need to be there. As part of, Jennifer and I as part of the pastoral care and prayer team, as well as being just simply a member of this church, we've seen many, many people in this church experience some of life's greatest challenges. And we've been privileged to play a small part in walking that road and helping where we can. There's something incredibly uplifting to be present with someone who says at the end of their life, this is a coming home, this is not a leaving. Jennifer and I have also not been immune to these experiences on our own personal level. We've also had our journey with pain with members of our family. And we have loved without measure. We've given comfort where we could. We've prayed unceasingly. But we've been subjected to the compassion and love of many, many people in this church, outside this church, and not even of the faith. And from personal experience, I'll tell you what it means to know that people walk with you, that God is at work in the compassion of his people when you are suffering, whatever their personal beliefs or their faith. And I have a great belief in all good things come from God. I take them from whence they come. Secondly, the Spirit of God within us sharpens our spirit lens through which we view all things. When we are in Jesus, we see God at work in our joys and in our sorrows. Reuben, I think, spoke a few weeks back about Johann Kirsten of this church who suffered serious neck and spinal, amongst other injuries. He's now on the mend. Long journey, but he's on the mend. On one level, we can ask why God did not spare this event. However, on another level, we can see the hand of God so evident in what went on. If you research the injuries that Johann sustained, the types of injuries, the, the normal consequence of that is complete paralysis or death. He was spared that. Immediately on hand, by some coincidence, there were trained nurses who could give assistance. And one lady who resolutely held his head, motionless for 25 minutes without wanting to be relieved, refusing to move until the ambulance came. She almost certainly saved him from paralysis and death. And also on the scene was a policeman who just happened to have trauma training also helping. Coincidences? Not my world. And this may date me a bit, but I like to think of the spirit lens as a stained glass window, particularly a window of the cross. And I'm comforted to know that God sees me through that cross. He has chosen from a heart of love and compassion to view me only through that cross, through the sacrifice of Jesus. And he sees me for all my brokenness as one who is redeemed and restored. In response, I try and view others in the same way, as those beloved of God, made in the image of God, purchased with the blood of Jesus for God. All humanity, regardless of their faith, share this. 
to reference this on a personal level, when we experience that personal tragedy, as I spoke about earlier, it's amazing how many times God was evident. Coincidences that could, just could not be anything but God. Encounters which are like experiencing ministering angels where strangers offered com comfort that could only be God-directed. And when we saw personal faith at work, where faith abounded as pain increased. And we could see the glory of God at work in the lives of those he loves and who love him. We turn now from those who call him Lord to witness many in our world who are spiritually dead, who do not know the risen Jesus and the joy and life that can be found in him. And as we look at our own sinful natures and the grace by which we have been saved, we should in compassion to those who either do not know or need to know more express the good news. We need to preach it to the poor, as Jesus told the disciples of John. We live and tell of his story, of our story, of our origin as those created and beloved by God, of our meaning as those created to live a life in worship to God, of our lives lived in the spirit of God, in word and deed that seek to redeem and restore and bring compassion to those around us, and of our hope when one day all things will be made new, once again we walk in glorious union with our Father and Creator. So as we are redeemed without personal cost, so we should also live redemptive lives. And redemptive lives are those that follow God in his restoration plan that started in Genesis 3. The whole Bible is about redemption. From that day on, we are truly the body of Christ as his church, as a body of believers, but also as his hands and feet of Jesus, bringing about compassion, restoration, and renewal wherever we can. In response to our redemption, we give praise. We adopt the character of the Redeemer and we look to the poor in spirit, to those in need of compassion. And as we minister to one another, we look to that day of joy and hope when we who walk with Jesus will arise in a glorified body within a restored world and given back to God as perfect as he made us at the beginning. So some final thoughts to wrap up. In the very next passages of Luke that follows this miracle amongst other events of Jesus. Um, these are brought to the ears of John the Baptist who at this stage is in prison. And in response, John sends two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one that was promised? Are you the one? And there's an interesting reply here by Jesus. He doesn't talk about the great following that he's got and this great religion that he started. He says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is the compassionate heart of God and Jesus the Son, a love that can never wither and will never die, and as Jesus said, will be, a, be with us until the end of time. So Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near in his presence and in his signposting, in his compassion, and his redemptive and restorative actions. He is indeed the one that was promised. So may we in true worship recognize that each one of us began in the heart of God, that everyone is someone. Every life is worthy in his eyes, and so it should be in our eyes. And may we be people of mercy and compassion, and seek people out unsolicited who may need our help and love and care. 
And may we respond in worship when we receive blessings from God, even when we don't. Some quietly worshipful, some noisily grateful, whatever we choose. And may we in our acts of mercy bring about the kingdom of heaven to earth. May we be those signposts to the new life and the new creation that is to come. When there'll be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, all be restored and all be renewed. Paul speaks to us of faith and hope and love, the greatest of which is love. And it's interesting to note that in the new creation, there'll be no need for faith and hope because those will be fulfilled. All that remains is love. And it's wonderful to consider there'll be no need for compassion because there'll be no more suffering, no more pain, all will be made new. Until that day comes, let us live redemptively and compassionately. So when we see people suffering, my prayer is that we hear the words of John, are you the one? And maybe, maybe, may we be that one. We could be that answer to prayer, those hands and feet to the suffering servant, because it is in helping others that we gain our Christ-likeness. So let us as agents of God's redemptive love, created out of love, having ourselves received mercy by being saved by the suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus, compassionately act to restore and redeem in the spirit of Jesus, with the authority of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. In doing so, we remember in the book of John where Jesus said, very truly I tell you, all who have faith in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these. So in the words of that song that we sung earlier, that great Brook Fraser song, let us be none but Jesus to those who need us in this world, who need the hands and hearts of a saviour to heal and restore. Let us be that one. Thank you for listening. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we just pray as we go from this place, Lord, that we would be sharpened by your heart and by your compassion. Lord, I pray that we would see those amongst us who need you. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts as large as yours, Lord, that we would be open and receptive to those that need your love and your care and your compassion and your restoration. Lord, and I pray that uh, this would not be simply of our own strength, Lord, that we would seek your strength, that through prayer and through the gift and power of your Spirit, that, Lord, we would be your hands and your feet amongst all those that are among us. Lord, let us be the one that you've called us to be. Let us echo the words of your Son. Let us echo the redemptive works of your Son. Let us be him in a world that so desperately needs him at this time. We ask these things in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.